Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Expanding Economics. My name is Sophia, and today we're joined by Michael Babcock. Michael is a PhD candidate at McGill University, where he also teaches a course in ecological economics. Today, me and Michael discuss what exactly is ecological economics, why is it pertinent that the economists of today learn it, and what sort of questions does the discipline still have to ask itself. So, Mick, tell me a little bit about where you're from and how you got to where you are now. Um, originally from rural Alberta. Um, grew up in, living in the, the beauties of Alberta culture and society, which is predominantly oil and gas and agriculture. And I got to uh, experience both of them, but I left at an early age. I left at about 20, 21, and uh, went traveling, and I ended up in, in university. Um, ended up doing a PhD in renewable resources and teaching ecological economics at McGill University. Could you give us a little bit of a debrief as to what exactly that means? Ecological economics today is a very contentious uh, discipline, uh, whereby what belongs in ecological economics as opposed to what does not belong in eco ecological economics is up to each practitioner of ecological economics. So myself and what I teach is a version of ecological economics that goes by the name biophysical economics, which focuses on energy and matter flows, biogeochemical cycles, energy, petroleum, renewable, non-renewable. But ecological economics, if you talk to some of the people that I work with and some of the people who I've done a PhD research with, ecological economics is everything. And this, this in itself falls under the rubric of ecology, because when you start looking at the science of ecology and the science of relationships and interrelationships, well, everything's connected. And it's this notion of connectedness and how everything is connected in the natural world that really, I, I was about to say forms the core, but then I don't know what that core would be, because someone will listen to this and they'll say, well, that's not exactly true. The core seems to be ecological. Human beings are embedded agents within the natural world. And I always say to my class, it's, it's, it's shocking that here we are in 2021 and 2022, that I'm standing in front of McGill, a, a very renowned university. And here I'm saying, no, actually humans are part of the natural world. Like we, we live in the natural world. We have to survive off of the processes of the natural world. Yet when you look at orthodox economics and by orthodox economics, let's just say, can we call it neoclassical? Uh, predominantly what's taught in um, economics classes at McGill University and other universities around the world, um, where it's, it's, it's not including these natural processes as much as what a lot of people in ecological economics would want. And again, it, it all started with a guy by Georgescu Rogan, um, who talked about the second law of thermodynamics, which is, I mean, I was going to say, it, it's very important. It's very important for everything we do. And so from there, it's blossomed out to inc include and incorporate all sorts of things, um, environmental justice, um, distribution issues, you've got issues of sustainability, and all of these are kind of under the rubric of ecological economics. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that within the discipline, there's not much of a um, decisive definition of what it is exactly. Um, maybe something that would be useful was to 
would be to trace where who started it and what was their intention when they started it. Yeah, good. Um, so Georgescu Rogan, once again, he was a, he was a, a, a European who came to America and he's, he talked about bringing energy and energy processes into economic frameworks. And now we can talk about this a little bit later because it, it, it can all be prefaced by a little bit of history of neoclassical economics and where neoclassical economics comes from and what its main presuppositions and assumptions and models are um, as opposed to ecological economics. Ecological economics as a discipline got its start officially. Like, I don't know if this could be as official as you, you'd get, I believe in 1991 with the Journal of Ecological Economics. And this was started by a chap by the name of Robert Costanza. And Robert Costanza in himself, who I've never met, um, so I, I, I don't know, he's, he's become, from what I've read and what I've heard within the discipline, a bit of a contentious figure for his association with neoclassical economics. So it's almost as if you've got a far, I don't want to use political labels or anything, you've got a, a pluralistic movement who seeks to separate ecological economics entirely from economics. And the founders of the discipline, some people like... Um, there's Robert Costanza. A, a big part of this took off at, a, at the University of Maryland in the United States of America. And there was brought together people by the name of Herman Daly. And he's written a very influential textbook on ecological economics with a guy by the name of Josh Farley, who's at the University of Vermont. Uh, Robert Costanza was there as well. Um, the gentleman who brought me originally to McGill was also there. And he became the first director of the School of Environment at McGill. So there was a focus on ecological economics there. And from 1991, from these origins at the University of Maryland, from using Georgescu Rogan's ideas of energy and entropy and how we continually need to put inputs of energy into the economic system in order for the economic system not only to function, but especially for the economic system to grow, you've had a bifurcation in a thousand different ways of what exactly is ecological economics. But that's kind of the root. The journal in 1991, Bob Costanza, he wrote um, one of the most famous articles in the history. Now, I, I don't know. I just made that up. It sounds rather bombastic. I don't know when you use big terms like history. But it's got 27,000 citations. And this was the article, I forget the year, 1997, I think, where they tried to attempt to determine a dollar value for all of the, the world. So everything in the world, so the forests and the water and the air, how much, because you've, you've got to understand, and we can talk about this, neoclassical economics is presupposed on price mechanism. It's, it's, it's a optimization model that looks at price as the ultimate nexus, utility maximization on the margins, producers and consumers, produce and consume on the margin. How do you get the most efficient allocation of resources based on this? This is all fine and good. And it's a very tight and I mean, tight, like logically and mathematically theory. But once again, it doesn't encompass things that are not reducible to the price mechanism. So here's the, here's the challenge now in one strand of ecological economics is reducing things such as forests and the air that we breathe to the price mechanism. And this goes under the term now roughly in the ecosystem services, if you're familiar with the term. And now here we are stuck at this battle, this, this crux of, okay, where should we go from here in using neoclassical economics? And then this complicates matter because the first generation of, I'd call them the first generation, these gentlemen I was speaking, I'm predominantly gentlemen, but there were some, some ladies involved as well, and they were getting more and more involved, which is excellent for the discipline. And they were involved with, with, they were economists is what I want to say. They were trained as economists. So in neoclassical economic models, now you've got 
a whole lot of ecological economists who are not trained in economics. So the question is, are they even doing economics? So you have to, do you have to play the neoclassical game in order to be doing economics, which is the optimization models, the optimization theory, the utility maximization, or can you do economics from outside of this framework? Well, we're at a stalemate. Yeah. And don't really know where to go from there. Because I suppose a lot of economists don't really agree with their main method or questions are either. So mm. uh, it's a big, it's very confusing yeah. for someone from the periphery. It's very confusing for people in the core yeah. like when, when you're <laughs> trying to. Periphery, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so you mentioned a few uh, things that I kind of want to pick up on. Firstly, is a key concept in ecological economics, which I picked out of the class and that was um, entropy. Yeah. Um, and how that how does that relate to the economy? Um, and then second, just kind of what are if we're not using neoclassical tools in our tool belt for distributing resources, what are some of the tools that ecological economics economists have come up with? Yeah. Um, okay, so the first one, the law of entropy is Im important because basically the entire universe is going to a, a, what's called a steady state. Um, energy and energy supply is constantly the 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 production of entropy, which is a, a a fabulously difficult concept, but really simple, is basically you're running out of what's called exergy, which is usable energy. And anytime you use energy, so there's three terms. I, this is confusing. I'm sorry. There's energy. There's exergy. There's entropy. Those three are connected. And the simple thing to say is, anytime you use energy, what you're actually using is exergy, and what is created is is entropy. And entropy is then unusable energy. So, in the grand scheme of the universe, as far as the physicists tell us now, and that's our understanding, is that entropy is continually increasing. So. We are running out of energy and we will always run out of energy and the energy that we have here. See, one of the, the core things in ecological economics is that our energy, all of the energy that we get is predominantly from the sun. There's some geothermal energy in the world in the form of, um, I think, uranium and thorium that we use for geothermal. The, the core of the, the earth is very hot, but predominantly the energy is coming from the sun. How we use that and convert it into usable energy, which is essentially what economics is, right? If you read economics, what economics is based upon, it's about um, trade and specialization and growth and the production of things for use. That's how you get utility. But in order to produce things, you have to use energy. Two things you have to use, energy and matter. And every time you use energy, you lose some of the energy through entropy. Now, boring stuff over, that means... If you build a complex society such as ours that is based on growth, it is always falling apart. This, the, the common example you always use is your bedroom and my bedroom at home are always getting, and every listener out there, if they have a bedroom, their bedroom is constantly getting messier. And the only way that you can correct this messiness is to clean it. Well, the cleaning of your room takes energy. Human beings as biological beings run off energy carbohydrate energy, um, sugars, this is how we eat. So you are putting energy in to maintain the order of your bedroom. Just as a complex society, just as a complex city like Montreal, when it's building a complex city, it must then continually bring energy in to maintain the order. Now, once you run out of the energy, as you will, given the second law of thermodynamics or the capacity to find energy sources for the upkeep, 
the question is what's going to happen to your civilization and this here we come into the to the course if you remember why we talk very very briefly only briefly about things like the collapse of complex civilization jared diamond wrote the famous book on it and how does a civilization collapse what you need to have energy if you use a great deal of energy you must find ways to keep bringing energy in to upkeep the order that's the first depressing point. The second depressing point is you have an ecological, an economic system that is presupposed on growth, which basically means you are going to continually need not only more energy just to achieve growth, but you also need the energy to upkeep the growth that you already have. So as you go further in time, it's a positive feedback loop whereby you're needing more energy all the time. So how are, to follow up, ecological economists kind of trying to go about figuring out how to keep producing energy or how to start yeah. distributing energy. That's, that's, uh, people like me work in fields like renewable resources, for example, and other people. And there's a great, great, great deal of work and great hope for optimism, um, with the, just the sheer quantity and amount of people who are working on these questions. Now, the questions in themselves it's not as if you need, and this is my perspective, I could be wrong, and I, I just read the stuff and think about it. It's not that you need to discover something fundamentally new, like energy is energy. Like I, I, I tell students, and like if you have a 55 kilogram mass, and you want to move it 12 feet, we could go on the blackboard and we could do the equations that would show how much force how, which is energy, the capacity work, remember, energy is the capacity to perform work. So how much energy, how much force do you need to move the 55 kilogram box? Now, you can sit around and theorize all day, but if you don't have the force that's going to pick that up and move it, it's not moving. Just simple, that's energy. So then, well, what forms of energy do we have? And what, what sort of activities are these forms of energy good for in that i mean if you have something like a fossil fuel a fossil fuel such as uh, gasoline crude oil is very good in an internal combustion engine so you can do a lot of moving with that and hence we see in our world today a lot of people do a whole lot of moving we get on planes um, which is a form of kerosene jet fuel that comes from crude oil we get in cars which runs on gasoline which is a form of refined crude oil um, we buy things all the time. The shoes that I am wearing right now, I don't want to speak uh, about your shoes, but I know where my shoes came from. And I know that they didn't just get here on their own. By here, I mean North America. They had to get, well, that runs off bunker oil in a, in a, in a trade ship. So it's not like you're inventing ways that you can use energy. It's just summing up, okay, if these are ways that we do this now, if we don't have the energy, we're not going to do it. So this is where we get to a lot of talk and it's, it's very trendy now and it should be about transitions an energy transition. How would we transition the energy that that's, that's the raw physical question of it. And when we beat up on economics, this is the point, And here's my position is that we're going to need economics to do this because economics is about efficient allocation. It's about just distribution. They have tools that can work towards these ends. We live in a very, very economic society right now. And this is contentious because I work with people who work in the degrowth movement and are, are going to disagree with everything that I say right now, which once again shows a little bit of the state where we're at in ecological economics, where you have practitioners who have their very 
I don't want to say pronounced, but you have your views on things. We, we take the energy view in our class to start with because it's the basic. We think like if energy makes things go. Our societies today are about things that go. We, we move things, we move people, we trade. This comes from Adam Smith in the 1776 Wealth of Nations. So we're still on this trajectory. How are we going to, like, here's the question. How are, I was about to say, how are we going to get off this trajectory? Do we have to? And this is where the field's at right now. The same thing with, well, I don't, I teach predominantly about biogeochemical cycles, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, main six essentials for life. We're looking at agriculture systems that must move these, produce these. How are we going to continue to produce food? Um, which is an important question for all of us that we eat. Um, I was still in the class just the other day, like uh, I read a thing, the, the population of the world is increasing and humans are biological beings. They need to eat, they need food. So how are you going to produce food? What's, what forms of energy are available? And it's very optimistic. That's good to hear <laughs> in an age of pessimism. Um, what tools from neoclassical economics do you think are useful in answering these questions? Well, well, one, we live in a business world. So if you have a business model and if you are trying to, to make a decision about how to transition something at, at, at the time we're at right now, it would have to work financially um, for as many parties possible. Like you don't know, you don't know because the problem is that society in itself is, is, is like a forest, right? It's a nonlinear system. And you've got this thing outside the studio right now that's called Montreal. And it's a, it's a thing. We walk out into it and it, there it exists and there's banks and there's universities and there's cafes and there's libraries and there's civil organizations and there's charities. And these are all a part of the thing. Just like if you walk out into a forest, you see mushrooms and you see trees and you see plants. And in a complex system, you don't know what's going to happen with the removal of one of those things. If you removed something from the society, one aspect of the society what would happen to the rest of the society is this is where you get once again a word that's very prominent now in, in resilient how resilient is a society so economic tools you can use to try to think if this section of a society here's a good example a couple of years ago banks had to be bailed out banks are too big to fail whoever was in charge estimated that our societies our ecosystem our forest that is our society, if the banks went from it, this society could be in big trouble. Now, how would you determine, and the system's changing all the time, capitalism changes all the time, it's dynamic nature, Sean Peter talked about this, creative destruction. So it's always got this internal dynamic. But that's the environment that we live in right now, and it's an economic environment. So what sort of tools, things like cost-benefit analysis, things such as, uh, statistical tables, national income accounts, which are used input output tables, you can see, try to understand what industries, what aspects of the society, if they were changed, configured, removed, like we got a, the, the elephant in the room right now is with climate change, right? So climate change is a big one. Um, what are the big, as an example, what are the big carbon emitting industries. 
Well, we know what they are. You can look them up and we know how much carbon they put into the atmosphere. So as a society, are we going to choose, not so much as an economic question now, that we're going to transition from these or are these, are these like banks? Too big to fail. That's right. Yeah. So we need to keep those. Well, if you've got some sort of snapshot, if you've got some sort of data now, emissions can be measured, just like prices can be measured. The problem is you can't necessarily put a price on an emission, except in what would be, and this is a hard way to say, this is a very contentious what I'm about to say, but in nothing but an arbitrary manner. Carbon in itself that is emitted into the atmosphere is not, it, does, it doesn't have a price. Price is, price is a fixation of neoclassical economics. They're concerned about price, the price. But this is why we care supply and demand. We got, we'll get the price right. This is supply and demand. But that's fine. What, I'll put it to you this way. If there was, there's a thing called set theory. And if you've got 11 gray elephants, what you know is gray is an adjective that describes something that's actually in the elephant. In, based on how we can see light, they're gray. But the 11 is not something that is in the elephants. 11 is called a set. And we don't know, ontologically speaking, if that exists or not. Where does that, do we put it into the world? But there's 11. But that, that's not a thing. That's not a thing. It's just a group. And a price is like that. So we can put prices on carbon. Now, was putting because people respond to incentives. This is what we're told in economics. I think this is true. I think this is, this is largely coming from an agricultural background in Alberta. I can tell you that in a lot of ways, this is very true. You make a lot of decisions based on what the price, the margins of the price are. But this is a specific uh, industry. If you live on a farm, the one thing you worry about most is, to put it colloquially, having to move to town. You don't want to lose the farm. So how are you going to pay the bills? Paying the bills, a lot of people, every single one of us right now, this is what I mean we live in an economic society. Every single one of us right now is concerned, not every one of us, there could be people who don't, uh, people who are referred to as like squatters or, or, or what, and all the power to them. But most of us, um, I can speak for myself, have to worry about my economic decisions. This is the world that I live in. So how do you reconcile these things? This is the world that we live in, yet this is a thing if we want to put prices coming back to like ecosystem services, that they don't actually have prices. We give them prices. We can translate a price, but yeah. it's yeah. something's always lost in yeah. translation. Yeah. And like, but that brings up a, a, a hugely contentious point, like, because it's ontological. We don't know that. We don't know that something doesn't have a price. Neoclassical economics, one of the, 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 so when I talk about ecological economics and how it's difficult right now, it doesn't really have much of a consensus. When you look back on the historical record that this was the same thing for a long time with economics, you had classical economics, which, uh, chaps like Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, David Ricardo, they were interested, Thomas Malthus, of course, very, very prominent and important, um, they were concerned with things like the land and, 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 and value theory, how it gives something value. Well, one of the greatest advances that came about with what was called the marginal revolution, marginal, the economics that you're taught in McGill 
as an undergraduate student is largely marginal economics. And I know this because I read the textbooks and you can read and it says in the back, I know what textbooks are taught in economics and this is not to say anything bad about economics is being taught. It's just what it's, it's, it's empirical. It's a marginal economic system. The marginal system was, was, was created in 1871. William Stanley Jevons wrote a book, Theory of Political Economy. There was a, another book by a, um, by a Viennese chap, Carl Manger, uh, 1872 on the marginal theory. Leon Mulray wrote a book, 1874, on the marginal theory. Um, the great, fast forward, Alfred Marshall at uh, Cambridge University, you can still go there and sit in the Alfred Marshall Library at the Economics um, Department. He was the one who brought marginal utility to producers and consumers. So now you've got producers and consumers who operate on the margin. But the point I'm trying to get at here is this took a long time. The marginal marginalism, the marginal utility, one, it, 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 it brought everything together with one metric. There's a famous citation in the literature that now Shakespeare's folios, those existing documents of Shakespeare, if there are some, I don't know if there are after I said that, and the shoes that we have on, they've all got a universal metric now, which is utility. Utility has now become value. So we value things based on the utility, based on how much someone is willing to pay for it. So then you have the price mechanism. Then you have the problem with climate change today because no one is willing to pay for a forest. Mm. But they're willing to pay for diamonds. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So go ahead. It's a very, it's very uh, problematic tension. And I can see now like... Yeah, neoclassical economics has had this, it took a long time to develop and get its stronghold. And now that it's here, it's going to take a long time to develop and move away f towards something else. It's not going to happen in one paper or one book or one class. Yeah, that's right. Um, when you introduce these kind of ideas to neoclassical econ economists, um, what is the response you get? <laughs> no, uh this is telling in itself. I, I don't have a lot of friends who are neoclassical economists. I don't have a lot of conversations with neoclassical economists. I thought when I got into this that, um, and I have friends who, I do have friends, friends of mine here in Montreal who are neoclassical economists. And we, we I just don't talk economics with them. Um, because, and I thought when I got into this, doing economics, that I'd read all these books and they would always say, okay, so you pick up, pick up a version of a book that, that there's one out there. Then this is just a random example off the top of my head. That's like the Nobel lecturers for economics. And so you'll find, um, chaps like Paul Samuelson in there and Kenneth Arrow in there. And they are very, they're very important. These two, to economics as it's taught today. Um, circular flow diagram, as we're all familiar with. Um, first big canonical instance of the circular flow diagram came in Paul Samuelson's textbook. And it was just as an example. So this, is, this was 1948, then it was hugely, now we're still taught it today. So then if you talk to economists, what they want to tell you is that economics is a science. Now, that's a very, not bold, but interesting claim. Because 
a lot of times science tries to deal with things that you would quote unquote call a universal, something that has great generality. The greater the generality, the better. Now, I would read these things in a book, like you can pick up this Nobel lectures and Mr. Kenneth Arrow and uh, Paul Samuelson are going to tell us about, oh, how much economics is science. And in my, I come here and I meet economists and they say to me, well, they, they sit in front of me, like we're sitting in front of one another right now. And they say, well, economics is a science. And I want to say, well, is it? Like what you're dealing with is human beings, because you, you have to understand this, this, this whole thing, neoclassical economics is about human behavior, producer and human behavior. Notoriously difficult, notoriously difficult to make any assumptions about how human beings act. Like, I feel like saying, when I meet economists, I'm like, have you ever dated anyone? Like, you think that people are just like, it's straightforward all the time? No, it's not. People are, we're, we're a bit strange. But you've got these models, and you've got a thing like called the law of diminishing marginal utility, which they claim to be a, a law, the law of supply and demand. So we're going to read that if I eat four pieces of pizza, the fifth one isn't going to be nearly as good. I don't get as much satisfaction. Great. Is that a law? Like, is that, is that something by which to build an economic theory of how people actually operate in the natural world, how they live and, and go about and make their decisions day to day in the world? about this utility maximization, because utility maximization, remember from your microeconomics, yeah, it would be microeconomics um, classes, is about finding the right suite of goods that are going to maximize your individual utility. So whatever they are, so, so you're going to have two bottles of beer and three pieces of pizza, because that's what maximizes your utility. Well, we basically know that no one actually thinks like that. Maybe some people do. I don't know. I don't know how other people think. Exhausting. Yeah, exactly. So we just kind of live, right? So this is a science. They're doing a science. And you've got to confront the fact that when they make the claim that they're doing a science, how would you respond to that? Right. Something that bothers me is that I feel like science is very much about doing controlled experiments, and that's virtually impossible yeah. in economics. Economics. I'm in econometrics right now, and yeah. it's you take your data and you impose your own structure on it. But every, the way everyone imposes structure is going to be entirely subjective. That's right. Maybe not entirely, but no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and this is right. Yeah, this is right <laughs> at the heart of the matter. But because they're they're striving in a lot of ways as well for objectivity. Um, but, but I just want to say this because the, the, economics as it was put forth and as it came out of the 1950s, and we haven't had a chance to talk about that and we, we might not, but as it came out of the 1950s and the Marshall Plan and the reconstruction of Europe, and you have a thing called national income accounts, whereby every country has got a set of tables. This is how they rebuilt Europe. It, uh, uh, Leontief built these tables. And this is all connected. And, and the great beauty, and I mean that, okay, so I study the thing in... I write books that's in peer review right now on a thing called conceptual systems, like a paradigm, how you make sense of the world, how something becomes rational. And the difficulty that I have with neoclassical economics as I study it and read it is it is beautifully logical. Like it's, it's, it makes perfect sense. They brought all these different ideas together and they brought the mathematics into it. And so you've got input output tables and you've got utility maximization, you've got producers and you've got consumers and you've got the circular flow diagram and it, and it, it 
that's an economy. That's, that's what our economy is. If you're an economist and you work for the Canadian government, you're looking at things like these national income accounting statistics. Everything's in a price. Oh, this industry isn't doing so good. Perhaps they would be looking for some sort of financial input. What is the word that they use? You need to, um, we get them all the time. When the government gives an industry money so that it can build up the industry, build up the capacity, build up, make the industry stronger, make the, make the industry more competitive. This isn't exactly a rocket science. This is nothing against economists, but the thing is they've been demonstrably successful. Like if you, if their, if their goal was at the, the outset of the 1950s to build an economic system that would make people better off and what's better off in economics, rise in GDP, where do you get the rise in GDP? You get it from the national income statistics. So you want growth every year. Well, you got to take your hat off. They've done a pretty good job. Right. Like if you look at GDP, which again, I don't want to get into how you compute GDP, but GDP is basically the output gross domestic product of a nation and look across the board from the 1950s and it's gone way up now. Good. Because what else has gone way up since the 1950s? This is what's known more and more. And I, I, I show this to students in the first class, of, in the first lecture, and then we get over it and we're done with it. It's called the Great Acceleration. And the Great Acceleration is the set of 24 graphs that is put forward that shows that exponential growth in just about every metric in human society, not every metric, boy, that was a howler. Not every, totally, there's only 24 of them. Um, but you get these distinct exponential growth curves in things like uh, the movement of materials and then uh, tra uh, communication. You'd think as a scholar, if I was going to talk about this, I would have looked this up prior and I would know what these are, but I don't. Look it up. The Great Acceleration. You'll see all these graphs. So not only are you getting an exponential growth in economic growth, but the whole point to come back to ecological economics is this is called throughput. Now you are putting energy and matter in huge quantities through the economic system. And when you do this, everything that you produce takes energy. It takes energy and it takes matter. And every time that you produce something out of matter using energy, it creates what's known as waste. Now we've reached, I tell my students this, if you want to know what carbon dioxide is, where climate change comes from, that's just, it's a quote unquote waste product of combustion. When you combust a fossil fuel, you're going to get carbon dioxide. It goes up in the atmosphere. What are we seeing now? Well, we're seeing the tremendous use of fossil fuels, which is fueling quite literally economic growth, which is then, I don't know how direct, because causality is hard in these, like you said, it's not an experiment. We just look at things. What's the, what's the, is it causation? Is it correlation? You're using a lot of energy, using a lot of matter. You're producing these exponential curves and they're all the same. You've got economic growth, you've got energy use, and you've got the great acceleration. So where do you go here? This is where we're at. Economic theory for what it was set out to be, what it set out to do, tremendously successful. Uh, to this point where that, that was its goal. That's right. But now maybe that goal isn't uh, suitable to the world we live in. Anymore. That's right, exactly. And so we talk, if you can remember back to the class, one of the things we talk about is, and I know in, in your textbooks, in uh, microeconomics, perhaps in macroeconomics, they show them as well. 
Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations, 1776. It's the invisible hand. It, okay, that's great. But it's not 1776 anymore. Like, there's 8 billion, not 1 billion. The world today, the social world today, is not the world that it was in 1776. It's not the world that it was in 1872. So then you get into the profound dilemma what do we do going forward? The, we hear we've, we've had these, these economic theories that have benefited in so many ways, but this is, here's the real howler that we need to talk about is because if you look, and again, I'm not picking at McGill, but if you go out right now and if you look up economics at McGill and you go to the undergraduate site, it's going to have a couple paragraphs and in the second paragraph, it is going to have some, something that says about how you make a society better off. We're at the real crux right now where we're trying to reevaluate what it means to be better off. Is a society that is able to have transcontinental flights in vast, vast quantities, ship things all around the world, have a huge, huge amount of consumption? Does any more, especially now you've got things that are such as climate change, global warming that seem to be connected to human actions. Do we need to reevaluate what it means to be a good life? Like you got to remember out of the 1950s, the Marshall Plan, Europe was devastated. They needed to literally rebuild the societies. They did it. It was remarkable, really remarkable. And they used these metrics that they came up with that were, that was not just Leontief, but this was also done at Cambridge. A guy by the name of Richard Stone was influential in doing this. So here we are today. I'm teaching this. I'm going to be 40 years old. You're taking it. You're, I assume, in your early 20s. All the students I teach are in their early 20s. And I just say, well, this is the world that is outside right now. This is, this is happening here now. So when we get to the end of this lecture series, don't expect the answer. Because we're fighting through this, right? We're not fighting. That's a bad phrase. We're, we're working through this. Because if you ask 100 people, in a classroom, what does it mean for society to be well off? You might get a hundred different answers. Neoclassical economics, it's easy. There's one answer. It's GDP. They've got all the models. They've got all the systems to, to show it, prove it, measure it. There we're at. Right. Neatly packaged. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Um, so I guess the like last... So it's very evident um, that you think it's important for economic students to study ecological yeah. economics, one hundred percent. And I think the answer to the why is I think most econ students would agree is the situation of the world and the climate change that we're facing. For if you were an undergraduate economist right now, and you were like interested in this, passionate about this, and you wanted to further explore or see where how you can apply your what you, you have learned to this issue um what direction would you head in um first it would depend how good my marks were because then like if you wanted to go there's great graduate programs cropping up all all the time in a lot of places in these things um but education is not the answer like education could be the answer i'm not going to sit here as uh, an academic and say, oh, go to university. No, it's not the answer. Like I would say sitting here, and this is not for you, doing what you're doing is wonderful. Having this podcast, ideas matter. Like this is, this is the difficult thing. Ideas matter and energy matters and economics matters. 
and we need to wed ourselves to this. But these these all take time. You need to learn about these. When, what would I do? Well, see, my first answer would be I would run into the hills and live there for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't do that. Uh, it wouldn't be a bad idea, but you've got to work with economists. I hate that that I don't hate. It's a bad word. That that is going to be potentially a dissatisfying answer to a number of people. But economists have created an economic system. I would also call on economists to educate themselves. I, I would I would say economists who have been trained in the neoclassical tradition should perhaps take up some ecological readings, should take up some energetics readings. I don't know because I don't talk to them a whole lot how in tune they were. Listen, I'll say this. Um, when I came to McGill, I was very impressed. Very, very intelligent people. I, I think that the economists in McGill, they know what's going on. Um, they understand their discipline way better than what I understand it. Um, I bet you they're working on these things. I bet you they're working on these things exact. So if I was an undergrad, I would get in contact with these people. I would see what they're thinking, how they feel about these issues. I would promote, and I've seen this on campus, and I think it's excellent, not just because I teach this class. And um, one thing I will say about the economics department at McGill, they've treated me tremendously well. Really, they're wide open to what I teach. Um, they're fantastic. And... I've seen student societies who are asking for a plurality of economics education. And I think that this is, that this is an important step to, to get to this, taking economics outside of the academy is also important, but how do you do it? Because like it or lump it, academics is practiced predominantly in an academic setting. And then people go out into the world to do economics. It's kind of removed itself. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe listeners know, like there's people who come out of high school and go work as economists. I don't know, but I think engaging with people and being humble and realizing that they're human beings too. And they have, they have ways of thinking that we ourselves might not understand fully and having fruitful dialogues and discussing things. Now this is going to come back, but I said at the earlier thing, I don't really talk to economists. Um, these are the experiences that I've had. They might, you might meet economists who are dead set in their ways, just like you might meet ecology. We're probably all dead set in our ways. Like if you think about it, I eat the same thing for breakfast every day, <laughs> like dead set in my ways. I study, but I try to broaden my horizons all the time. And I'm not saying that economists don't, but here would be a good way to put it. Try to find, if you're an undergraduate student, try to find ways, and this can be join a foreign language club. Join a language, join a club of a group of students who are from a different faith than you. And sit down and talk to these people and respect what they have to say and learn from it. Because what I think and what you think isn't God-given truth. Maybe you, maybe you, I don't know, but I'm sure about myself, I'm a little bit fallible. So just broaden your horizons would be the best way to put it. And I think economics is, is starting, really starting to do that. So you think there is a openness for change 
within the department. Mm, yeah. I don't know about how, how much, I don't know how much openness for church. Like, listen, they let me teach ecological economics and I, um, I hope that the chair of my department doesn't hear this, but I don't teach a whole lot of economics. Okay. Like you're not going to do a whole lot of optimization theory in what I teach, but I found this through teaching. And this is one of the beautiful things I think, and I'm, I've been told this, the class that I teach will offer a different perspective from what a student has thought about the world before. And this to me is an important component of education. If you want to maybe take a course, we've all done it. You've done it. I'm not saying it was my course, but you've taken courses that have changed literally how you look at the world. And if a lot of people are talking about transitions and new ways of thinking and plurality, maybe it might do people well to take courses that kind of change how they look at the world for better or worse. And in teaching the class, I teach things such as basic energetics. What am I teaching today? Uh, sorry, I was just looking at my backpack. I am teaching about carbon content of wood, wind power, tidal, uh, not tidal, um, water mills, windmills, how you can use these to capture and convert energy. Once again, we're talking about energy because I found in teaching this class that um, not a lot of students are familiar with these things. So we're trying to educate on a broader level. And then how can you, because you can't just say, I can't just sit and say to you or say to a student, energy matters. Well, great. You're going to walk out the door and say, hmm, you got to live it. You got to learn it. You've got to understand it. Economics has to be lived and learned and understood. So choose as an undergraduate student, kind of in a way what you want to learn and live and understand, because that's going to have a profound influence on then who you are when you come out of your undergraduate education. Education today, I, I think a lot of times about economics. If students took four years teaching, learning about ecological economics or four years learning neoclassical economics, what type of people are we putting into the world as an institution afterwards? Not in the sense, are they good or bad, but what do they think about the world? And is it time now, based on what we were talking about earlier, to be putting more of these people thinking about things such as energy and nature and forests, not just a price mechanism, not accounting metrics, not econometrics, which are all important, but maybe a bit more of a balance. They're achieving this. It's happening right now because I'm educating students right now in this department. So like great, great strides. Remember, econo ecological economics 40 years ago was not taught anywhere. Now it's being taught at McGill University, very good institution. Let's hope more will follow. Yeah, follow by example. No, you, uh, that's, I think, very valuable advice. And um, yeah, we really appreciate your take on uh, the department. It's very optimistic and positive, which we don't hear a lot of within, right? between the students. Okay. So it's good to hear that yeah. uh, other side of things. Good. Uh, is there any other things that... I didn't cover on um, end. I, I wanted to say one thing. Uh, Leonard Cohen's 88th birthday today. Oh, happy birthday. Uh, poor Leonard Cohen. Uh, yeah, like, I, whenever, whenever anyone comes and uh, visits me in Montreal, which wasn't very often because of COVID, you walk down to Rue Crescent, walk down Sherbrooke to Rue Crescent, there's a beautiful Montreal's own, and he's lovely. Great poet. Maybe, like, m we need more poets. Agreed. Like, 
fewer, let's go out, cash money. This is what, let's just get some poets out in the world and have them make some decisions and listen to them a bit more. Yeah, I think they have some beautiful things to say as well. Okay, on that note, this has been Expanding Economics with Michael Babcock, a PhD candidate of natural resources. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you very much.